Now, even if you're building a combine, a medical device, whatever it is, it's no longer a fixed time thing. There are expectations of how it will be tracked during its go-to-market effort. There's how it will be supported. There's so much more that the market has an expectation of. So that is no longer a project. It is a product. It, It impacts your brand, how you support, how you just bring it to market. And for that reason, you need to think about these things you're giving birth to as enduring concerns. Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SCP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hey, in this stage of constant bombardment, you could listen to just about anything else but this show. So I want to say thank you so much for deciding to check this one out. If this is your first episode, I think you'll really enjoy it. My guests are Oji and Azine Udezwe. Azine is the Chief Product Officer at WP Engine, and Oji is the Chief Product Officer at Typeform. They have both been product leaders for many years and happen to also be married. I saw them give a talk at a conference last year called Industry, and I really enjoyed their lens on what they would call customer listening. Our conversation built on top of that talk, and we also discussed what they would view as a full-stack product manager with the idea of balancing business demand with customer delight. I found their focus on customer care to be thoughtful and helpful. So if you're working on a product with any kind of customer engagement, I think you'll benefit from hearing from OG and Dezine. Also, a big thank you to Chris Schinkel, our Director of Innovation here at SCP, for joining me for this conversation. All right, let's get to the show. Hope you enjoy. OG Nazine is, I think, about where we got introduced. Was it industry earlier this year where you two gave like a co-talk? I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, but you both gave a talk together. We're going to go with co-talk. Can I trademark that now? You can. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Throw some coins from the proceeds. <laughs> yes, God. You guys get a cut. Royalties for, for helping with the idea. So you're both accomplished product leaders at two respective companies and have had your own careers and are now kind of conjoining. And the talk that I heard was around customer listening. I'm kind of curious, like just for context setting, what inspired that? And can you give us like a 30,000 foot overview of what that talk was on? Aji, why don't you go for it? (laughs) Right. So it was really about how to listen to the customers you have in order to refine your product to gain delight. It's not just product market fit, which is the first phase. What is how to delight your customers? Because we think fundamentally product is about balancing business outcomes with customer delight. Why do we say delight? Delight is what causes loyalty, is what causes people to stick around, to be very happy customers. The fact is we know from operating that customers are always speaking. The last 10, 20 years has been about creating channels for customers to speak to you. So if it's not on social media, it's on your support forum. If it's not your support forum, it's your support channel. It is account management. It is, you know, when people churn, they tell you. If you send them an MPS survey, they tell you. And what we realized is that 
product companies are not really mining these channels where people are constantly chattering about using your product to make the product itself better. And so we wanted to sort of lay out a roadmap for people to use what's already available to them as a resource they can use to make their products better. Why now? As you all know, in the last, I'd say, 18 months, there's been a lot of focus on profitable growth. And profitable growth really allows you to go back and ask yourself, what does a retention look like? Retention in and of itself is really about folks staying and being delighted and them really getting value from what it is that you've built for them. We continue to see folks go out and try to build net new product. And it's really hard to get to profitable growth sometimes from those. So how do you, with your existing product, really try and drive NRR upgrades? And it comes from, you're not going to get it from a prospect necessarily. You're going to get it from your customer who's able to show you what's not working, what types of integrations work for them, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, it felt timely because we saw people try to do this net new, new product development in a time where it was really important to, you know, in other words, mine right? Yeah. <laughs> From what you already have to drive retention, because retention is growth as well. These companies, are they focused in the wrong areas? Like, are they mining the wrong information? Or are they simply just like, this is a gold mine that we don't even see, so we're not going to mine at all? I think it's more the latter. Okay. I think it's more that there's opportunity. And honestly, like Aji said, we're operators. Continue to see folks, uh, people that report to us, or people who are cap coaching, and they are almost looking to reinvent the wheel. And oh. the reality is that if you listen to what your customers are actually telling you, we're not asking that you go do exactly what they've asked, because I really do believe in, you know, you can get painted into a corner, but yeah. listen, figure out what problem they're trying to solve. And then there's definitely opportunity for you there. People are saying things, your customers are saying things, but a lot of software companies, a vast majority actually, I'm not tuning in. They have the wrong receiver. They're just discarding them. That's interesting. It got me wondering, you mentioned, Azine, you know, people that you might be coaching or folks that you've worked with or consulted with over the years. Is there something that you observe in the folks that fit that bucket that you're like, oh man, you are not looking in the right area. You need to be focused over here. Is there a set of behaviors or beliefs that make you kind of shake your head a little bit? I don't think it's fair to say shake my head, but I do see a pattern. There's a pattern where it feels as though there's a problem statement. And I see this happen. The customer care team has listened to lots of calls. They have some instinct and insight into a solution. They're coming to you with a solution, probably not what you want to hear. But in there, there is a pattern. They have received something. So you don't have to go back and start trying to do full discovery. What you can instead do is have them walk back from the solution to what problem did they observe in the support calls. They sense to this, yeah. don't tell me what to do. You know, we are the product people, et cetera, et cetera. But they have tuned into a signal. And oftentimes they don't know how to present it as a problem. Instead, they present it as a solution. But there really is a problem identified because they tuned into that. So that's the pattern I see. That rejection of that signal, because it's coming as a solution versus helping them turn it around from the solution to the underlying problem. I really love that you brought that up because that's a really practical anti-pattern. The thing about listening is not discovery. You know, discovery is about finding 
almost like novel, new pains, workflows, jobs to be done. Listening is simpler. Listening is about tuning in. In our talk, we identified like two categories of sources. One was first party sources when you're listening just to the customer. And then we talked about proxy when you're listening to account managers, the support people, because parts of the organization is the first sync for these customers. And, you know, listening is more continuous. The real important thing about listening is really trying to get to the heart of what's being said. Getting to the heart of what's being said is maybe like an order of magnitude simpler than talking to a net new customer and saying, oh, what else do they need? What new job to be done? What new workflow should we address? It's just like, it takes a little more time. And so if teams will distill what customers are saying, no matter where it's coming from, they will make a ton of progress. What's kind of like shaping up in my head is that it's a continuous way of showing up as a product leader, working within your walls. It's not necessarily a specific even though there's there are some tactical steps people can take and some actions they can they can take it's not this milestone of like all right now we're going to sit down and have our customer listening meeting it's just part of the way they show up every day and engage as a team interesting we think of it as almost a machine you know if you're a product leader of seniority there are a few sort of systems you got to build You have to have your team be capable of customer discovery, which is discover big new opportunity. You have to have a way to sort of manage your people and promote them and so on. That's a whole system you got to build. And we have this really cool talk we call called product systems that talks about all the things that you have to take care of if you're a product leader. But within that, one of those things is listening. You got to build a listening machine. Think about it as like if the product team, the R&D team is a body. It's like it's one of those systems like circulatory system. You build one, you need to build an organization that is constantly listening to customers and uses to improve the roadmap and inform the roadmap. That's what you have to do. It's a skill. It's a system. Let me give you an example. We take all the paths of listening, put it into Slack, triage it, put it into Jira. This is saying a very short amount of stuff. It's a real process. If you can do that continuously, it just becomes like just some a muscle people just have just like working out every day, you'll have a better organization. That makes sense. A couple of things that I'm always curious about when somebody kind of like is embarking on a relatively new journey or is kind of like headed in some direction, think about you two with our powers combined. What's been surprising to you both as you've kind of headed in this journey of customer listening and expanding on that and developing more of that product coaching relationship with the folks that you work with? I think one of the first reactions, it's a good one. The first thing people say is, but oh my goodness, we're told not to listen to our customers. Like they'll all wait your existing customers, right? You should be going out and speaking to prospects. But I really want to take us back to customer discovery was birthed out of the whole customer development process, Eric Reese and Steve Blank. And it was really around new product development and startups. So this was uncovering newness. And I think that it does have a place particularly when you have new hypothesis for pain points to be solved. But the reality is that there are many companies that have existing solutions out in the market and need to evolve those solutions. And that's a reality. Not everybody's a new product development PM. In addition to that, we're also seeing that the ability to upgrade, have people do more attaches, like if we're being really practical about SaaS, that's a really critical piece too. So you do need to talk to your existing customers. 
you do need to understand how your existing product works in their workflow. You do need to talk to them to know whether this integration or that integration is better than the other. You don't get that from just anybody. It's people who honestly are imbibing the workflows that you've designed in the past or working within your product that can offer those insights to those adjacent products to deliver features that really, truly drive delight and make this thing that you've put in the world better. Would you say that it's like customer retention is easier than customer acquisition? Like, I believe that to be true, typically. I'm not sure easier is the right word. Maybe it's the wrong word. I think that you're right. Like the sentiment that people are people, mean technology people, obsessed with acquiring new customers. For example, a lot of you build a thing, your product marketers are more likely to send a quick perfunctory email to your existing customers, or then start a content campaign to attract new customers <laughs> with the thing, right? right? When you have a lot of people who could upgrade to the new thing if you price it properly and just generate a ton of cash for you immediately. And so there's this weird incentive we have of like, oh, we got to acquire new customers. Well, how do you make existing customers stay longer? How do you make them pay you more? Actually, yeah. in this in the last two years, that has created so much difficulty for technology companies post-pandemic. Your existing user base is literally salvation. I was at Saster or whatever event in California, and this actually showed up in a Bessemer deck. You really have to mind your existing customers, figure out how to retain them further, et cetera, et cetera. Look, you have to be able to walk on chew gum. There's definitely a place for expanding your value proposition. There's a place for more growth to you know, increase activation and conversion. Let's not sleep on product improvement. Yes, I think that's important. It's, why is this top of mind? Is that we just felt that we, I'm like true believers in discovery, believers in customer development. Aji and I actually spent quite a bit of our earlier career in this space. I spent quite a bit of time on new product development. So it's my bread and butter. But as I continue to practice, I realize you have to do both. You really need to work on your install base. And to your point, shiny objects are just sexier. Building net new is just cool. Yes. So often people sleep, like, uh, sleep on this idea of really working and delighting your, your install base. I'm curious, you talk to your customers, you listen, you're going to get a bunch of ideas and maybe you might have some advice for our customers. Our customers don't often have a shortage of ideas <laughs> coming in from the market. And then they're trying to balance that with new initiatives that business is pushing down, right? They've hired the latest consulting firm. They've got a new strategy deck with the three bullet points on it that nobody thinks we're going to be able to do. And now they're trying to balance all this. What advice might you have in terms of how to facilitate some of these trade-off decisions within an organization? Or is that something you see as well? This is the eternal thing, I think. I think it's really about strategy, right? Let me paint a picture of maybe one version of that and maybe we'll do the inverse. If you're a company whose, say, revenue growth has stalled and say your existing customers, even if they stick around forever, that's not going to be the thing and you need brand new growth. Well, your strategy has to be about creating new value propositions so you can get net new customers, a lot of them. And so you tend to need to build new value propositions. So you either build something for a new customer who will now sort of become part of your customer base, a lot of them, or you build net new value proposition for your existing customers. So they're still your customers, but there's a new module. There's a whole new job to be done workflow that you're attacking for them. 
And so if they buy into this, you double your revenue, if that makes sense. But you can't really double your revenue necessarily by just optimizing the thing you've just given them. So if your strategy then is that, or you're in that bucket, like if I'm leading that organization, I'm thinking, listen, a lot of my investment, say 50 plus, is building net new things. I can sell that to net new customers or sell it more into my customer base. If that's the case, you're going to do a lot of discovery. You have to really understand that workflow, that new persona that you're addressing, that new role that might be coming in to use the product in that team that you already sold into. And so that's discovery. That is literally finding the shape of this new thing you want to solve. And then part of your team, because you don't want to abandon revenue, will then refine the thing that exists. So it's a question of investment, thinking about it as, as a investment portfolio. So in that case, you're spending 60% on net new stuff, 40% on old stuff. Now, you could be an organization that's the inverse, which is you have no chance in hell of going after new customers, not in the short run, right? Maybe in the long run you do, but really you're unoptimizing your existing customer base. Then you really have to improve what's in front of you. And then you spend a lot of time listening to customers to synthesize a really good roadmap. Most customers sort of fit in the middle of this. And so they have to ask themselves, what is my portfolio split? How do I go after new stuff? So once you think about it like bets and portfolios theory, then you start to think about it better. So, you know, a lot of our customers, the product they're shipping isn't necessarily the software. It's software is part of the product, right? It's a medical device. It's a combine aerospace, right? So... I'm just thinking, trying to think through sort of applying some of the the things you shared with, uh, I don't know, with regards to sort of listening to your customers when maybe the customer base, it's not a huge customer base. It's not millions of customers that sort of in a SaaS model. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a long delay between building a device, going through clinical trials, FDA, you know, yada, 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 before it even gets to the customer. Just kind of wondering, I guess, what advice you might have in those sort of situations or things you've experienced or seen, how you would apply some of those concepts to maybe a non-SaaS. I think you said earlier, sort of more fringe software, you know, fringe kind of on that. <laughs> there's so much, right? There's so much product advice out there for that. And it feels like it's all sort of focused and it sort of assumes you're going from B2C, SaaS, web, mobile. And we talk to a lot of customers, a lot of product managers who are in organizations that are building consumer products that go in the home that sit under your sink or they're part of your car and software is not necessarily driving the product. You're not necessarily buying the product because of it, but it's certainly a part of the product. So you're part of a bigger ecosystem. Just, I don't know, curious what advice you might have for product managers in those situations. So I got a chance to do hardware. So one of the things I'm really proud of is the diversity of experience and I've done hardware in the past. And like you said, really focus on transformation. Some of the things that I've learned through the years is that oftentimes when folks work on a hardware solution that is backed with software, just the job to be done versus the workflow as well. How will it be used? You know, we do this ethnographic research where you go to people's homes and watch. That is really important. Let me tell you why. Telemetry. That is one of the best ways to listen on a connected hardware. Really figuring out what are you collecting? When are you collecting it? What frequency? How are things used? And how can you begin to connect dots with how that hardware is being used, when it's being used, et cetera, by watching it in use. 
you can then begin to automate or uh, I guess digitize <laughs> the feedback you're collecting. So that's one. The second is really pushing out the drop, like design, obviously connectivity matters, like making sure the software can phone back and you can do OTC, all that stuff, OTC, all that. OTA, that's important to update. The third major piece is also this idea of pushing back as much as you can that lock date, like really building it such that you're taking in as much input and paying attention, again, not just to the product, but to the technology that is to come. So now you have a job beyond working on the job to be done, but you also have to be that advocate that sees around the corner beyond your customer themselves. I always feel that you should be able to anticipate the needs of your customer in hardware even more so, even more so. You've got to be paying attention to, well, AI is important. How does AI change this market specifically? And then run that by the customer because they don't have enough space and time to think about that. But if you can bring it up and play scenarios with them, that's how it helps. I'm going back maybe 10 years in my career, but those were really critical for me. Being that advocate beyond what my customer can imagine, really making sure that I had that online connectivity for updates and then true ethnographic studies, like literally going to people's homes and watching them use the product and then determining from that what telemetry I wanted to get from the product. Those are really critical as I built hardware, um, connected hardware solutions. If you have fewer customers in a longer life cycle, it's important to have betas. I think that even with clinical trials, you have smaller groups who have early access so you can prove the thing. And actually, having these smaller, slower things is an opportunity for deeper listening, meaning that a lot of PMs and software people don't take the opportunity to do the field trips, to really like be beside the customer and hear what they're saying. For some reason, this is the hardest thing. People want to stay indoors and do it. You know, Steve Blank used to say, get out of the building. Technologists, for some reason, don't love to do it. So they have to get out the building, not to do discovery, but to see it in action, even with the very early clinical trial people. They have to make buddies with them. You don't listen to them just when you meet them. You listen to them in between. Build the channels for them to call you, for them to text you or whatever that is. This is so important because many organizations don't have it formalized. Now, let me introduce a different idea, the workflow. If I build this for you, and it does this for you. The fact is humans don't work that way. Before people get to this, there's a this in front of it. Think about it as a pre-workflow. And then when they do this, there's a thing after it, a post-workflow. Good listeners have to listen to see all of that. So as a software person who has software and hardware, you're looking to what happens before they need you, what happens after they need you, you're looking at the holistic, so the software and the hardware, not just your software. If you're looking at just your software, you're looking too narrowly. How does it fit into the whole? And then what is in a set? Telemetry, right? Because telemetry tells you only a little, but the observation tells you why. So listen by going with the early customers, the beta customers, the clinical trial customers. Look at the whole picture, not the small part of the picture. If you can understand the big picture, software for the big picture will work even better. Yeah, good point. Maybe only related in my own head, but <laughs> they feel related. <laughs> you know, like Zach said earlier, a lot of our customers, they have a history. I mean, some of them are 100-year-old companies. They obviously have been successful companies building products before software even existed. And so the systems and everything internally, the, the organizational structure is really set up around 
software system. But one, one of our customers who was in the precision ag space, right? They made two releases a year before spring plant and before fall harvest. Like that was it. You didn't ship software any outside of that. And so a lot of those product managers really have a history in project management. And organizations see things as projects. And I do the project and now IT runs the project. And so they're struggling in terms of shifting from that project mindset to a more product mindset, to even pay attention to listen to customers after the release, to hear new ideas, to hear and sense new opportunities. What advice might you have for someone who's a, maybe their organizations, they don't have a product group within their organization. They have a traditional PMO, a project management office, right? And they've got IT or marketing, and they're trying to function as a product manager. They need to think more like a product manager and holistically like a product, but their organization sort of treats them or sees what they're doing as a project. Curious, maybe advice you might have for someone in the situation who feels like they're stuck in a project world trying to manage a product. Last year, I got invited to do a product talk to a very like a century old, over a century old financial company, mostly insurance products and so on and so forth. And they had this exact problem. And they had a, a merry band of product and design people who were trying to shift it. Right. And that's why I was there. That was my role. My role was to go there, use my clout, whatever it is, to inspire change <laughs> amongst the group. Look, I tend to be more a realist in the sense that companies like that will fall further and further behind. I think that's the reality of software's eating the world, meaning that people who use software well will eventually triumph for those people who use software badly. Maybe some people are sheltered from the reality of the economy shift that's happening. Maybe in some legacy industries, insurance, I guess, being one of them, defense and so on and so forth, because the competition isn't as high in some of those places and people have a hundred year set of relationships to deal with. But the fact is more and more, especially with the advent of AI, people will see competition. They will see replacement pressure. Personally, AZ and I don't necessarily believe in project managers as PMs. We believe in full stack PMs, people who can have a lot of customer science in their tool belt, people who have a lot of communication in their tool belt, who can synthesize roadmaps and then turn around and lead technical teams to get it done. I think what I would say the most is these companies should try to learn how to make that transformation. Because if you're a project team doing this, there's just a lot of wastage. You will build software that people don't want, and you'll spend millions of dollars doing it. You might eventually get it after two or three iterations, but it's just a waste of time and pace of what's happening. So I wish I had a more positive thing to say is that I think you should encourage them to move quicker to a more standard system that people like us have had the privilege of living for the last 20, 30 years in some of the technology-first companies. It's doable. They just need to have the will to do it, I would say. Sorry, I think that's going to be more encouraging, maybe. No, no. Like Audrey said, we have this product mind is one of our consulting arm, and that idea of thinking like a product person is a core of what we focus on. So I sit on an advisory, and... So speaking to leaders that are facing this challenge, the thing I now say is like, hey, projects are these fixed time things you do. Now, even if you're building a combine, a medical device, whatever it is, it's no longer a fixed time thing. There are expectations of how it will be tracked during 
it's go-to-market effort. There's how we'll be supported. There's so much more that the market has an expectation of. So that is no longer a project. It is a product. It impacts your brand, how you support, how you just bring it to market. And for that reason, you need to think about these things you're giving birth to as enduring concerns. And once you now start to think about them as enduring concerns with specific outcomes, you don't want too many of them recalled. You don't want too many of them sent to sent back uh, for repair. If they get recalled, you want the fixed time to be so short that people don't notice, right? Exactly. When you think about the entirety of it, it's important that you are creating outcomes for the customer and your organization and that it's managed through that lens. So it's no longer a ship it, done, which is what a project typically is, very time-bound. It actually has a lot to do with the brand equity you're building and the resulting outcomes, because you do know that even if the project is successfully shipped, if it, in the end it comes back with all these costs, it impacts your bottom line. So a product manager can step above that and really look like, what you said, we're looking at people who are commercial, people who can speak tech. We want to make sure that they fully understand the business and can think and, and then make those trade-offs of, okay, we could be done in four weeks or we could take six weeks and make that choice or create that feature because this is what the long-term impact will be. That's how you begin to shift people's mind and say, listen, it's no longer about this shipping by this date, but it's about how this entire thing will exist in the world and how people will encounter it. Can I just inject two more things? One is a challenge and one is a concept. I find that sometimes people don't conceptualize these things. I think it was spot on that there's a continuity to whatever you make, whether or not it contains software, which is required for you to grapple with as a business. I'll also say that PMs, you know, one definition we've already shared here, we've already shared here is that it's balancing business and customer delight. One thing way to also think about product management is the people who try to orchestrate the entire customer experience. Like we've gotten to a journey in our, in our understanding of product is that PMs care about every place where customers Attached. Now, in core software, it's usually just the product. That's like a lot of it. But honestly, I care about how people start the journey of sign up for my product. I care about when they actually use it. I care about how it's supported and how they touch the support team. I care about the camp management team. As a chief product officer, I look into every of those experiences. Even if they're not my department, if they're bad, then I complain. I want it to be good because I feel like I'm the spiritual lead of every single touch point. I think good customer, good product managers think about it this way. And I think good leaders should think about it this way as well, even if they're not product or not. And the second thing I'll say is a challenge is that good product teams, good R&D teams is an exercise of leadership because leaders reorganize their teams all the time. They're like, oh, here's a new CMO or now we are moving marketing under this thing and that thing. Because you've been around for a long time doesn't mean you can't reconfigure to be exactly like, say, how Microsoft does it. It's just a question of will and appetite. I know that politics calcifies organizations, but the point is it's doable. You can make it happen if you understand why. In the book we're writing, one of the first chapters is why product management. We wanted people to understand that it's the intensifier, the multiplier of engineering. Because you can have 100 engineers and then 50% of the time you're not on target, but you can have 80 engineers, 20 PMs, and then you're on target 80% of the time 
your return on capital is much higher immediately. And so leaders need to understand that this is almost a financial decision to make in order to be more on target, more on time, and make sure that customer loyalty is, which returns to your bottom line is good. So these reconfiguration can be made. I love this concept of like reframing this idea of a project into this almost like a continuum. Same way that we think about SaaS product development life cycles, that's this iterative thing that's ever ongoing. Until you decommission and deprecate that product, you're constantly adding to it. It's going to live on for a long time, you know, with maybe some of these physical products, like changing the framing to somebody to think like, there are still time frames. I think that's a really cool way to kind of shift the way, even just, you know, as a consultant in me is like, ooh, I like that. I'm going to steal that maybe in the next time it comes up in the conversation. <laughs> no I love it. Yeah. So I'm thinking about, as we wrap up our conversation, OG, you just mentioned that you guys are working towards a book. I'm curious. I'm sure the customer listening is one piece of that. Can you give us a quick snapshot of kind of what we could expect from that and kind of maybe what timeline you guys are working on? Can we get a quick preview? <laughs> yes. So yes, um, the book, I feel like I've, we've been sitting on this book for a while. So the book is really, the tentative title is Building Rocket Ships. The notion of it is how to apply the techniques of product management to solve recurring problems in building valuable software and hardware with technology. We go through some of the things that, you know, customer listening is like a big section in the book, but also we talk about discovery. We talk a little bit about growth, how to get people to your product and how to ease the entry and the start of the journey. Talk about how to deal with churn and like, Businesses that are built on technology have this predictable life cycle of hard problems to solve. And we go through each of them and sort of apply 20 plus years of product management and careers that span either starting a company or going from millions of customers to billions of customers, say at Microsoft, to that lens into each of those things. And it's really designed for, first of all, product people, people who are in our field, but also for executives. It's for CEOs, CFOs. COOs to understand what product, how it accelerates their business and increases return on capital and so that they can hire, mentor, and enable better and better product leaders to help them run and build better companies. What I'll add, at least there are many voices out there. The voice for this book, it comes from, you know, we've used the word operators quite a bit. It's because we've had a chance to work in many scenarios and there are many frameworks out there that when like put to the test, they're brittle. So this is more of a, this is what we're seeing. Yes, this customer discovery is good. However, there's also this other thing that is overlooked. Okay, this other framework is good, right? But we also need to think about growing teams. And what about what happens when your team isn't performing? So it's ambitious to try and get this in there, but we're coming at it from not the perfect scenarios, but the rawness of what product management can be. I like that. Well, you mentioned earlier, I love this idea of a full stack PM. You know, we talk about full stack mm -hmm. engineers all the time. I don't know that I've heard full stack PM, but I like that. Concept is great. And Copyright. Yeah, we'll trademark that one too for you guys. <laughs> Brought to you first by Behind the Product. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, as we wind down here, you both have had very accomplished product careers so far and a lot more to come. If I'm a burgeoning product manager, maybe I'm coming, as Chris was talking about, I'm coming from that traditional project management background, or I'm coming up as a 
an engineer or designer, what are the things that I need to be cultivating or thinking about or working towards to get to that full stack product management role? It's a deep question. I know. Put you on the spot. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons that we're doing this is because both of us found this profession very early and we love it. It's one of those weird ones. It's sort of an anachronism in many ways, even though it's very popular. You can't learn it in university. You can learn software, you know, engineering. You can learn design. You can learn user research. We're only aware of like one or two product management degrees in the United States. And so there's a lot of like more informal training for it and so on and so forth. So we've thought deeply about this and we think about how it really helps companies and we could go into that debate. Well, one way to distill it for me is that when I look for PMs, I'm looking for five main capabilities or things will translate to what people can learn. The first is leadership. PMs generally have a lot of responsibility and so they have to lead and they have to make trade-offs. And really, the definition of leadership is people who can just excite followership. It's not about your personality or rah-rah or anything crazy like that. An introvert can be a leader, right, if they can excite followership. The second is communication. PMs have to communicate and over-communicate all the time. They have so many stakeholders. I think about it as the spoke, the center of the wheel. It's constantly turning, and it needs to say different things or present the same information in different ways. So over-communication is important. The third is what we call customer science or product craft. And so it's being able to listen to customers and distill truth from it, intent, not just listening to the words, but what's behind the words. It takes training actually to do that. And a lot of user researchers have some of the base training for that and that you can learn as well. The third is people who are result-oriented. They just, they want to deliver the outcome every single time And so there's just a bias to action, a bias to try things, safe enough to try. And then the last one is fuzzier, is the profession attracts people who are creative, who can look around corners, who can take white space in a very fuzzy problem and then start to distill it into something very specific. At Microsoft, we call it intellectual horsepower. But over time, I think it's really around creativity and problem-solving ability. So those are five things I look for. But all of those five things can be trained. They can be improved over time. If you want to be a full stack PM, it's really about taking a rough idea and making it concrete and then communicating it to a bunch of engineers and designers to build something. That's sort of the core of it. And then as you become more senior, there's a lot more that goes into it. Everything RG said is exactly even what I created in my, all the companies I've gone to, you normally start with like leadership and that, that sense of ownership and accountability, then communication, then execution and impact, product sense and customer insights. And then the last one, oftentimes you see it on a competency guide as strategy and planning or the ability to take ambiguity and shape it or curiosity that comes to fruition. Like that's usually how that often shows up in a competency guide, but those are critical. And going to your question of a project manager, like Audrey yeah. had signaled earlier that, hey, product managers can be really challenging, but I've noticed that a lot of them are actually really good on the execution and that sense of ownership. So they do have something going for them, generally. <laughs> so I used to be like, no, we can't move them. But now some of my best product people are who have helped deliver on time are the people who are project managers. But what we have to shape them is this understanding of the commercialization, everything around the product and the why of the product. And that's often where we just need to spend and invest time. 
everybody's got constraints. You're just you're using different constraints. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's like nobody's perfect. Some people will come with each other, but I'd rather sometimes now in my overtime, I've learned I'd rather invest in people who actually are strong. <laughs> I know they're definitively strong in these two yes. areas or one yes. versus hoping that they'll be strong in all five. So I know they're good at this and this. I need to figure out if I layer on another part of the stack by teaching them commercialization or teaching them customer discovery. Right now I'll have three of the four of the five, right? <laughs> Over time, I used to have a really strong opinion against that, but I actually flexed a bit as I observe the person just work. Are they curious enough? And if they are, they probably will learn um, strategy and planning. And do they have a desire to ask and seek questions? If they ask a lot of the customer, then I could probably train them in customer insights. And that's four out of five. Because we think about it as capabilities, I think we both had a lot of success transitioning people from different roles into product, like support people who are very customer centric into product, people who do testing and understand like the quality of a product into product, people who do like partner management strategy into product, engineers into product. Because, you know, at Microsoft, for example, we had to perfect because it was such a big shop, trying to understand product aptitude, even from college, people who had no track record. At Microsoft, there are brilliant English majors and philosophy majors who were product managers and became really great product managers. And so anyone can do it if you have the aptitude. I love that sentiment. And I, I love the framework. That's what's really cool to think through. I very much appreciate you both so much and just taking the time to talk to us and share about this and getting the exclusive on the uh, book and the trademark. <laughs> I'll, be looking forward to, I'll be looking forward to reading that thing when it comes out. Yes. So thank you so much for spending time with Chris and I and uh, look forward to connecting with you guys maybe next year at industry or anytime here soon. Okay. All right. Thank you, Zach. Thank, thank you. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having us.